Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 today, starting at verse number 27. And uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word today. Luke chapter 5. We're also going to be over in Luke chapter 7, um, verse number 36 later on in the message. So if you keep your Bibles open and, and aware, that would be awesome. But here's what the Scripture says. After this... Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at a tax booth. By the way, he's also known as Matthew. I don't know if you figured this out or not, but everybody's got double names in the Bible. There's Saul and Paul. There's Simon and Peter. There's Matthew, Levi and Matthew. There's Abram, who becomes Abraham. There's Jacob, who becomes Israel. I mean, it's on and on and on. There's a new name written down in glory, amen? Jesus said to Levi, Matthew, follow me. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Would you speak and challenge us, remind us, encourage us, comfort us, whatever we need today, would you help us to have ears to hear? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, and uh, going back to my early days when I was a, a young man, um, was in, I was, went to school at a college on the um, East Coast called Eastern Nazarene College. It's in Quincy, Massachusetts. It's, uh, they call it near Quincy Bay. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a small Nazarene school. It's probably the smallest of all the Nazarene universities. We have seven of them around the country. And um, that's why it's still called a college. Everybody else has turned into a university. You know, we're still a college. I think right now the population of Eastern Nazarene College is 300 students. That's pretty small, wouldn't you say? When I was there, it was about 1,000 students, but it's a, it's a struggling college there in New England. It's one of two colleges left that are Christian colleges. There were many at one time, but they've all closed, and um, Eastern Nazarene College is still hanging on. And one of the things that we did when I was a student there is every Friday night, we would go out with, uh, we would meet in the student center with all of the other students who wanted to go and do evangelism. We were, we were instructed and trained to share our faith, and uh, we would get, get on the, um, what they called the T, which is like uh, mass transportation, and we'd get on the train, and we'd go into Boston, and we'd go to a place called Faneuil Hall. 
If you've ever been to Boston, it's one of the places to go. Faneuil Hall is great food, great place to go. It's, a, it's a, lots and lots of people there, especially on a Friday night. And we would set ourselves up in the, in the middle of the, of the square, and we would have a couple of students who were really good at, um, at taking a huge canvas with some, some paint, and they would start drawing on the canvas. And um, there would probably be anywhere from 20 to 50 college students that we would, we would make a circle around this, um, this canvas that where they were drawing. And if you know anything about a crowd, a crowd attracts a crowd. So one of our methodologies was that the crowd of students would, would make other people who were just passing by stop and kind of watch them as this, this painting was being done. And this painting, the longer it went on, it was a, it was a beautiful picture of the, of the death of Christ. It, w- it became known that the longer you went on, you were looking at it and looking at it and saying, what is it, what is it, what is it? And soon the picture would come out and it was the, the death of Christ. And as it got to the end, there'd be a couple of other students who would step in and share a gospel message and, um, and, and share the gospel there with whoever had stopped by. And then at the end of the gospel presentation, all of the college students that were there would, would, be, would be not only watching and listening, but they would be watching who was stopping by. And we would, we would simply slip over and stand next to somebody. And somebody else would slip over and stand next to somebody else. And then at the end of the gospel presentation, for anybody who remained, we would then say to them, would you like to pray? And we would give an invitation personally to the people that were there. And we would pray for people to come to Christ. Now, I want to tell you that we were really effective. We were not. Looking back at those times, I remember going home on a Friday night and I would say to myself, Lord... Why didn't people accept you? It was so clear. It was so right. I mean, the presentation was so good. We had practiced it. We were ready. We had prayed up. But so many people at the end of the presentation were gone. They would just, they would almost start running away. And usually the only people that remained were the homeless people. And they were loved by God just as much as anybody else. But usually it was one or two. And usually at the end of the prayer they'd say, can I have a hamburger? Can I have some money? You see, evangelism is not something that's easy for us. And it's something that I think sometimes we think that that form of evangelism is what, when we think about evangelism, that's what we think about. We think about the itinerant preacher standing on the corner. A couple of years ago, we went to Pasadena to watch the Rose Bowl parade on, on New Year's Day. It was fantastic, by the way. One of, my, one of our bucket lists, because living on the East Coast, we always said, we've got to go see the Rose Bowl. We've got to go see the Rose Bowl. Some year we're going to go. And every time we looked at the tickets and the cost of hotels and all of that, we were like, we're never going to see the Rose Bowl. But we went because we lived close and we drove down and got there early in the morning and realized, you know, it probably is not as expensive as it looks like from the East Coast as it does from the West Coast. 
You can just go. But we went there, and there were crowds gathering. There was this guy that was walking around with a bullhorn. And he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was, he, was, he, was, he was preaching a rather hard message. Repent! Repent! You're going to go to hell. You're going to die. God loves you. And he would just walk the streets and, and preach before, the, before the, the Rose Bowl parade. And I thought to myself, well, God bless him, but it's not very effective. I'm not so sure how many are coming to Christ with a guy with a bullhorn today in America. Then there's the, the tactic of a guy standing with a sign. Trust in Jesus. Jesus saves and he's standing on the corner. And then there's a, there's a other guy who's, who's handing out, who's handing out tracks, you know. He's handing out tracks. And you, have you ever done the track thing? You give it out the four spiritual laws and you tell people and you tell people. Well, I've looked at the gospel of Jesus Christ and I said, Jesus, what was your form of evangelism? How did Jesus reach people? Last week we saw Simon and John and James. He said, come, follow me. And he was standing at the edge of the, of the Sea of Galilee. Well, how is it that Jesus wants us to reach people? We've been asking you to who's your one? Who's your one? Who is the one in your life that God wants you to be praying for, that God wants you to be inviting, that God wants you to be sharing your faith with? And last week, remember, we heard that God is the first mover. He is the missionary God who is already out there in the world. He's already working in the hearts of people. Long before you even share, God's there. God already knows them. God already loves them. God already died for them. God has already probably used other things in the event to plant seeds, to water it. Somewhere along the way, there are things going on. But then as I read the scripture this week, and I spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke, here's what I discovered. I love this verse in Luke 7, 34. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. You probably have read it, but you probably read right over it. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And if you read the Gospels and you just stop every time Jesus stopped and had a meal with folks, you'd be amazed how often Jesus was eating and drinking. Here in the Gospel of Luke it says, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. They were calling Jesus somebody who ate a lot and drank a lot. Oh, he's always just eating and drinking. He's always just eating and drinking. He's always just eating and drinking. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's always hanging out with lost people. He's always hanging out with the people that are rejected by society. He's always hanging out with people. And what is he doing when he's hanging out with them? He's eating and drinking with them. He's known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But then Luke says this, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. And I stopped and thought about that. What is he talking about, the wisdom? I think there is great wisdom by God who is trying to reach a lost world, who is trying to reach people who are broken, who are hurting, who feel like nobody loves them, who is seeking them out. And one of the greatest forms of evangelism today is simply eating and drinking with them. 
I didn't get one amen. I mean, Jesus did it. I don't know about you, but if Jesus was eating and drinking with people, I think that we should maybe, just maybe, put our bullhorns down and our signs and our, and our fancy meth, uh, evangelism methods down through the years, and there's been a lot of them. There's been evangelism explosion where you go knocking on doors. There's been, there's been ways of people just, you know, trying to, trying to do the bait and switch with people. I mean, there's all kinds of forms and methods of evangelism, but the simple, ordinary method of just sitting down and eating with people is a to me, one of the greatest tools that God has ever given to us. Amen. Thank you, Nacho. Appreciate that, amen. And so today, I want to look at two stories. One that I read earlier, and two that is a little later in chapter 7 after this verse. Catch these two examples. First of all, have you, do you know your one yet? If you don't know your one, have you been praying about who's your one? And are you keeping that one in your mind and heart? Because all of us are called and responsible, as you saw in that wonderful opening video, we are responsible to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But our methodology, our, our methodology of doing that, how we do that is so important. In our scripture this morning, we see Levi, or Matthew, who sets the example for us. Levi, by the way, is the fourth disciple who is called to follow Jesus. He's the one that is called. He's the, he's the most unlikely one to be called. And notice what it says. After Jesus went out and saw the tax collector. By the way, every time you see the word saw, God is moved with compassion. He sees people. He recognizes people. He stops. He gets eye contact with them. He, he acknowledges them. It was been very easy for him to just walk on by the tax collector just like everybody else because the tax collector was somebody who was hated in that society. He was somebody who ripped people off. But on this day, Jesus went out and he saw the tax collector by the name of Levi, who was also Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. What's a tax booth? The only thing that I can think of today would be like the toll booth for us today. And by the way, it's becoming less and less toll booths. Did you notice that? It's all done electronically now. You know, you drive through and they just take your money. You don't even know when they're taking it. You don't even know how much they're taking. They just take it. And if you don't have the little get up that says that you can go through there, they send you a bill and a fine on certain roads. But here there was a tax booth, and that tax booth was probably a place where there was commerce moving, where there were people moving, and there was, there was a recipient. And a tax collector, not, not only did they take the necessary appropriate tax for whoever was moving from one place to another, but they would also get, add a little bit to get their own cut. And tax collectors were wealthy, wealthy people. Because they were ripping people off and they were the most disliked people in that society. 
Why in the world would Jesus call somebody like this to be his follower? Why would it be the fourth one? I mean, maybe the last one, but why the fourth one? I mean, why would Jesus call somebody who was despised? Well, that tells you a lot about the kind of God we have, doesn't it? And the kind of people he calls. Everybody's redeemable, even the tax collector. And he said what he said to the others. He said, follow me. Follow me. Jesus is the first mover. Jesus is the one who reaches out. Jesus is the one who stops. Jesus is the one who sees. Jesus is the one who identifies the tax collector, not just by a occupation, but he says, Levi, come follow me. By the way, I didn't know anybody's name in the circle. They were all people, and we all recognize them. But the best kind of evangelism is when you know somebody's name. When you get to know their story, and you understand where they come from, and you build a relationship with them. And Levi, the scripture says, got up and he did what, remember what, Jay, what uh, Peter, Simon Peter last week and the fishermen did? They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their father, they left everything and followed him. And that's exactly what Levi does. But Levi does something that is highly different than all of the other disciples who are called. Notice what it says about Levi. It says this. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. <laughs> He had just resigned as a tax collector. Remember, he left everything. He left his job. He left the tax booth. He left that lifestyle. He had left it all. And he says, you know what? I'm going to throw a resignation party. I'm not a retirement party, a resignation party. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to throw a party for my conversion of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to actually invite all of my tax collector buddies and others, anybody else that I know, and I'm going to invite them to a banquet or to a meal, and I'm going to invite Jesus to come to that meal. You see, when you get saved, when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, what you are doing now is you are now converted and changed, and you are now looking for people that are, that are in your sphere of influence to invite them to a meal, to love on them, to share with them, to show hospitality to them, and then allow that Jesus would be there to share the good news of Christ. I wonder what Jesus said at that meal. I wonder how many became Christians at the banquet that Levi called his friends to. 
Scripture doesn't tell us, but put that on your list when you get to heaven. You can ask her. I would suspect that many did because notice it says in Romans chapter 12, it says practice hospitality. If Jesus is eating and drinking and Jesus is having meals and Jesus is having a meal with the tax collectors and sinners, and remember in, in Luke chapter 7, we read that verse that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He was known as a glutton and a drunkard and he was known as a friend of sinners. In other words, this encounter with Matthew or with Levi, whatever name you want to use, and all of his tax collector buddies became scandalous. It was a scandal he had to live with all the way to the time they, they crucified Jesus. Oh, that's the guy that eats with sinners. Oh, that's the guy that hangs out with tax collectors. Oh, that's the guy that loves on the prostitutes. Oh, that's the guy that cares for the Samaritans. Oh, that's the guy that cares for the, the other person on the other side of the tracks. Oh, that's the one who cares for the drunks and the drug addicts. That's the one who cares for the one who is going the wrong way. That's the one who loves the rich young ruler. When you think of the word hospitality, what comes to your mind? My wife, we have food. Yeah, that's true, nacho food. My wife um, and I, for the last 35 years or whatever, however long we've been in pastoral ministry, one of the things that I've learned over the years is one of the most effective ways that I can pastor is around a table, around a barbecue, around a party around an environment where people are invited to come in and there's food served and there's conversation and there's laughter and there's just simple joy. And I don't know about you, but some of you love to go to a party, but you don't like to throw a party. Jesus went to a lot of meals, a lot of banquets. And the most effective way for you and I to reach our one is by sitting down and talking with them over food. Do you know who Martha Stewart is? How many of you know Martha Stewart? What is she known for? Cooking. She's also known for what they call entertaining. Okay? And here's what, here's what Martha Stewart said about what we would consider hospitality, but she doesn't use the word hospitality. She uses the word entertaining. And there is a difference between entertaining and hospitality. Okay? Catch what she says about entertaining. Oh, I don't want to be there yet. Did I get these in the wrong order? 
Oh, I went, I went too far already? Ah, there we go. Here's what Martha Stewart said. Entertaining, like cooking, is a little, what's that say? Selfish. Because it really involves pleasing yourself with a guest list. That will, say that word for me, coalesce, into your ideal of harmony with a menu orchestrated to your home and taste with decorations subject to your own eye. Given these considerations, it has to be pleasurable. In other words, what, what the definition of the world's view of hospitality, which they call entertaining, it's all about the host, not about the guest. It's all about making yourself look good. It's all about being concerned that how you perform and how you, how you go about um, uh, preparing the food and the decorations and the decor and, and, and your house and all of those things are so stressful on your life that you go, you know what? I don't think I can do that. But hospitality, my friends, biblical hospitality is not selfish. It's actually generous, loving, because the focus of biblical hospitality is upon the guest, not upon the host. It's upon the guest and it's upon the God who makes himself known that there would be an environment, a space, uh, uh, an, uh, an opportunity of time and place for, for love, for, for acceptance, for connection, for relationships to be built in such a way that God could begin to work in someone's own heart and life. I think today in our world, we are really, really bad about hospitality. You know why? Because our world about food is all about Uber Eats, fast food, delivery, get it done, consume. That's our world today. Now, that may not be your world, but one of the things that Jane and I did for for since we've been married, as Jane has always said, you know what, we're going to sit down for dinner and we're all going to sit around the table and we're all going to sit there and eat together and nobody's going to get up until everybody's done. And some of our greatest conversations we ever had with our kids were around the table. I grew up in a home where everybody grabbed their food and went off wherever they wanted to eat. (laughs) But hospitality is that place. Levi opened his home. Jesus opened his heart. Levi got saved and said, hey, I got an idea. I want all my friends to get saved, so I'm going to open my house and invite them all in. I'm going to invite Jesus there. And when Jesus got there, he opened his heart. He opened his love. He was there to greet them and love on them. In order to practice hospitality as mission, it requires us to do the same. Here's what I want to ask you. Will you offer God your home, your tables, 
your food? Will you use the instruments that you use every single day to sustain yourself to be instruments to make a friend, to help somebody feel comfortable, loved, connected? Will you, will you create a space like Levi where you invite not only the people you know, but people you don't know to be a part of, of a relationship with God and a relationship with yourself? Will you open your home and will you open your heart? And if you're married, will you work together to make that happen? If you're single, and if it's an apartment, or if it's a coffee shop, or it's your car, or it's a lunchroom, wherever it might be, will you offer yourself and what you have to the Lord to say, Lord, I want to use what I have to draw people to yourself for the Lord's glory. I love what it says here. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they witnessed this Matthew guy getting saved, Levi. They witnessed this event of Jesus hanging out with a bunch of them and eating. And they begin to complain to the disciples, not to Jesus, by the way, but to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus being so, so intuitive and knowing what we think, even if we don't say it out loud, Jesus answered them and said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you know that we get the word hospital and hospitality from the same root word? Have you ever been to the hospital and you have not been cared for? The nurse never comes? And you feel like you're left there all by yourself? Wondering if there's anybody doing their job? And then you've been on the other occasion where you've had good care and good love and good attention. You've had an attentive nurse. You've had an attentive staff. They brought you food. They were responsive to your needs. And you got well in the hospital. Hospitality is, is healing to the soul of mankind. It meets them at their deepest needs. It provides an opportunity for the grace of God to begin to work at the very depths of a person's being. Hospitality is a hospital in your home, in your car, in your lunchroom, at Starbucks, at Smitten, wherever it is that you meet people and your attention is upon them and not upon yourself. Your attention by prayer is that God would, would, would inhabit the fellowship between human beings and God would move in such a way that their hearts would be opened. Would be opened. Their hearts would be opened. 
You see, a lot of people are close to God because they have ideas that are not true about who God is. And they assume that you believe what they believe about God. But when you start having meals with them and connection with them and provide hospitality, all of a sudden those walls start to break down. I just love what you guys did last year where you opened your home or your front yard to your neighbors. I wish I thought about that before just this moment because I would have had you tell the story. But the roads down here, they invited their neighbors to their front yard. It's a pretty cool thing. Who's your one, by the way? Yes, he is. But who's your other one? If you have your one, by the way, would you take and write it on the boards over there? You can put the first name and then your name next to them. First name, dash, and put the other person. If you're not comfortable writing their name, put their initials. Okay? That's our prayer board. We want to make it a time all year long where we pray for our one. Well... Simon the Pharisee sets for us a bad example. Now catch the contrast here, okay? Now remember, before this story that I'm going to share with you, there was Roman, there's Luke chapter 7 verse 34 that says, the son of man came eating and drinking. He had a reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. He was a friend of sinners, Okay, that was, that's, that's Luke's kind of connection to the story about Levi, the tax collector, and the story that he's going to share with you right now about Simon the Pharisee who sets a bad example of hospitality. Because notice what it says in verse number 35. Notice what it says. No one, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have, didn't I tell you he did a lot of eating and drinking? So he went to the Pharisee's house, Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, when they reclined, when they sat at the table, they didn't sit in a chair like this with their feet under the table. They sat, if this was the table, they would sit like this. Their feet would always go away from the table and the table would be very, just a little bit off the ground and they would sit and eat with one another like this. That's reclining. It's not very comfortable. I'm glad we invented chairs. Amen? But that's exactly the picture what you have here. And then it says, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, so you have Simon a Pharisee, who is a religious guy who invites Jesus to his house and says, hey, come have a meal with me. I hear you're, I hear he's got a reputation, you remember? Simon the Pharisee already thinks he has a reputation, but he invites Jesus there, and Jesus is there, and it says there's a woman who lived a sinful life, and I learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. 
So this woman who is in town knows that Jesus has shown up and she notices that Jesus is having a meal at Simon's house. In those days, they didn't have doors and windows. You could actually see into somebody else's house. It was, it was, it was like, you know, it would be like eating with all of your doors and windows open in your house. And everybody, everybody knowing that what's going on there. And so she came and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him. Remember now, he's, he's reclining at the table. Hey guys, hi Simon, hi Jim, hi Susie. And she comes in to the house. She's, by the way, not invited. She's not invited to this party. But she has, she knows that Jesus is there so she slips into the house. And she is standing at Jesus' feet. And as she's standing there, can you imagine everybody around the table going, what's that woman doing? I mean, this is awkward. This is awkward. You can imagine the scuttle around the table. Because she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. Tears running down her face. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. Well, that's awkward. And then she wiped them with her hair. Now we're really getting awkward. And then kissed them. Okay, time out here. This is really intimate. Some commentators said it was almost scandalous in the sense of being erotic. Tears, hair, kissing. And then she pours perfume on his feet. Now for us reading that, we go, well, that's really weird. What's this woman doing? Scripture goes on to say this. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. So what did the Pharisee, Simon Peter, Simon the Pharisee's going, hey, what are you doing? Now he doesn't say that out loud, but he sees it and he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Probably referring that this woman is probably a prostitute. Or a woman who was not well respected in the community, who was not accepted, and who could never be loved by God. And if he was a prophet, like he said he was, he would never associate himself with this kind of person. It's one thing to hang out with tax collectors who are rich. And Jesus answered him, Simon, by the way, notice it says, he says to himself, guess who knows what you're saying to yourself? Jesus knows everything, by the way. Simon, I have something to tell you. 
So he tells them a story, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but basically he tells them a story. He says, hey, what if there's two people and they both owed a lot of money to somebody? One owed like, you know, a million dollars, and let's say the other owed only a hundred dollars, but neither one of them had a dollar to pay it back. And let's say that that owner who owed the debt said, you're both forgiven of the debt. You're both, the debt is canceled. That was the scenario gives. Now, which of them will love him more? The money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them loves him more? Which one, Simon, loves him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. By the way, who are the debtors in the story? Simon, the Pharisee, and the woman who's considered a sinner. That's what Jesus is inferring here. Now, Simon doesn't quite catch that until later on in the story, but he says, I suppose the one who had bigger debt canceled. And Jesus responds and says, you have judged correctly. You are absolutely right. And out of that scenario, and I'll catch this, catch this. I want you to catch the contrast now between Matthew the Levi, who invites all of his friends, hospitality, to a party, and Simon, who invites Jesus to his party, and somebody shows up that's not invited. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, turns towards the woman, but says to Simon, the woman, Simon, Simon's invited the party. Simon's the host, supposedly the host. But he says about the woman who is not invited. Catch what she says. Do you see this woman? Simon, do you see this woman? He already sees the woman, yes. He already recognizes that the woman doesn't belong, that the woman shouldn't be there. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying to Simon. You were not a very good host, but the woman who was, invi- who was not invited is a better host of me than you are. This woman has provided the customary things you see in that day and time when you went to somebody's house, they washed your feet. When you went to somebody's house, they kissed. That was the common, that would be like a handshake or a hug today. 
When you went to somebody else's house, they would pour perfume on. They would like, it would be like somebody going to a nice house and they had hot towels for you. And they gave you a hot towel and you got to wash your hands and your face together. And one time I took a first class flight from, from New York all the way to Qatar on a first class plane. And I was amazed the first thing they brought out were these wonderful hot towels. I didn't even know what they were. And they handed them out with tonsils. And I said, wow, what do I do with this? And, and the guy next to me says, hey, just wash your face and your hands. I was like, oh, okay. And I started washing. I was like, wow, that's cool. Then they came around and picked them back up. And they did that like three or four times on the flight. I was like, what do they give to the people in the back of the plane? Nothing. You get a lot of hospitality for $10,000 for the flight. By the way, I was only there because somebody had upgraded me in my church because I was going on a long flight and they wanted to bless me. By the way, the best way to fly is first class. <laughs> Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Your love of God is connected to your openness to love people. Let me set that, let me let that sink in for a moment. Your love for God is connected to your openness to love other people. Simon was not the host. He was an entertainer. He invited Jesus to the party to puff himself up. He invited Jesus to his home to show how great he was. And he didn't even offer the customary things that any host would do as, as biblical hospitality. It was the woman who wasn't invited who really was a better host of the party than the person who owned the house. If you're going to love other people, if you're going to reach people, you got to take on Jesus' methodology. Be a good host. Be more concerned with the person you're sitting with than yourself. Offer him common everyday things like eating. And watch God work. There's a book out called Ordinary, and in that book, he talks about four practical ways to show Christian hospitality, and I'm just going to give you these. There's some scriptural notes in your, in your, in your, in your um, notes this morning, but a few things he says here. First of all, welcome everyone you meet. If you're going to be an hospitable person, you've got to be a person who greets people who welcomes people, who helps people to realize they're open to this. Worship team, come. I'm not going to do that story. I told you I was. Engage with people. In other words, engage with them on a regular basis. Engage with them in such a way that they feel open and loved. Eat with them regularly. Make your meals a priority. Most of you eat three times a day. Some of you eat more than three times a day. Some of you eat less than three times a day. 
So if you did three times seven, that's 21 meals a week. 21 meals a week, if you turn that into four weeks a month, that means you have 84 meals a month. How many meals will you invite somebody to eat with you? Just eat the meal. Have a cup of coffee. Be intentional about inviting your one. Not to preach at them, not with a bullhorn, but to open an environment for God to begin to work in them. Pay attention. Remember Jesus? He saw them. He saw the tax collector. He saw people. He saw those who were sheep without shepherds. Those who were harassed and broken. He saw them. My hope and prayer as your pastor is that this year we would get really, really serious about hospitality. Amen? Both individually and collectively that we would be used in such a way that God would do some great things. Amen. Come, let's sing a song, and then I want to share a few announcements with you before you go. Father, thanks so much for your love and your grace. Thank you for this scripture this morning, Lord, and for teaching us, challenging us to realize that ordinary ways can make incredible differences. Lord, send us. Send us, O oh God, that we might be the people that are your hands and feet. Not with bullhorns or tracks, but with hospitality, eating and drinking, hanging out with sinners, hanging out with neighbors and friends and family, hanging out with strangers who become friends. Help us, O oh Lord, to be more like Matthew the Levite, Levi, than Simon the Pharisee more like the woman who loved Jesus so much she was willing to interrupt a, a party, a meal, and love on Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.